0: This is episode number 13 of the Tax Security Podcast, where our panel of experts from the security teams of the Cisco Technical Assistance Center discuss Cisco security product configuration, troubleshooting new features, and hot issues. Today, we'll be talking about the HTTP protocol and ways you can filter web traffic using the advanced features of the ASA platform. So with me today is our regular panel of experts, including Magnus
1: Mortensen. Magnus, hey how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I'm pretty excited. I think... Uh, Hopefully within the next coming month or so, I'll be closing on my house, and that'll be another milestone behind me, so.
0: And your stress level will be reduced.
1: Yeah, that is, I, I'd like to get that monkey off my back.
0: Okay, well, we'll see if you sound different next episode. <laughs> David White Jr. from the Escalation team in RTP is joining us. Uh, how you doing, David?
2: Good, Jay, thanks.
0: Are you doing anything fun this summer?
2: Oh, fun. I don't know. I'm uh, leaving tomorrow to go to Wilmington for a wedding that my wife and son are in. Been in quite a lot of number of weddings recently, so what happens when your wife's got a lot of friends that are at that <laughs> marrying age. So I'm hoping this will be one of the last ones because I'm a little weddinged out
1: now.
0: Uh, Wilmington's a really nice place. I like it a lot.
1: Yeah. They so. mentioned she's in the wedding. She's not the bride, right? Uh, not, uh, <laughs> okay. not that I'm aware of. All right. Just double-checking.
0: <laughs> okay. And joining us from Richardson, Texas, thanks to the power of the human network, is Blaine Dreyer. Blaine, what have you been up to recently?
1: Hey,
3: Jay. Um, I might actually close on my house, but uh, in the reverse direction. I, I think I've sold the one in RTP.
1: So that'll be really cool to get that off my plate. Man, closings just have a tendency to get people's monkeys off their backs, don't they?
3: I think they take too long. I'd rather do it in cash. That'd be a lot
1: faster. (laughs) And and, and unmarked bills in a briefcase by a a trash bin somewhere? Yeah, with no ink packs. Yeah. (laughs) All right, well, today we're going to talk about the HTTP
0: protocol and uh, how it can be filtered by the ASA. And we wanted to talk about this because a lot of people buy ASAs uh, specifically for filtering and they use, we see a lot of customers doing the content filtering features of the ASA for the uh, HTTP protocol. Um, Also, attacks using HTTP are becoming more prevalent. We talked about more technologies using HTTP, such as uh, a couple episodes ago we talked about the AnyConnect client, and that's a VPN client Cisco is offering that makes its connection to the head end over HTTPS, right? It's over TCP port 443. So, as we see more and more of these, you know, communications technologies using HTTP, we thought it'd be important to do an episode on the ASA and what features and solutions it can offer for filtering the HTTP protocol. We're going to talk about the protocol, the HTTP protocol itself, and do a breakdown of a specific TCP connection and we're going to talk about some of the fields and the way the connection gets built and the data is transferred and the way the connection is torn down. And we wanted you to be able to follow along with that. So, uh, Blaine, tell us what you you posted to the Cisco support forums.
3: So I did a quick uh, Google capture and I screenshotted that and then I also took the PCAP and I posted it to the Cisco support forums. And I kind of ran down the uh, get requests in that HTTP, as well as the response data that comes back. And I talked a little bit about each one of the fields that are in that, um, and that'll lead to what we can match on with the ASA.
0: Okay, so you said a Google capture. So you, from your website, from, from your client within Cisco, you visited the Google website, just google.com, right? And then you captured all that data And how did you do that?
3: I opened up Wireshark and just started a capture um, on the particular IP that I was visiting when I resolved Google.com. So I did a a capture filter on that particular IP and then captured all the traffic bi-directionally.
0: Okay, so if our listeners want to follow along um, or if they're in the car when they get into the office or or get home, they can go to the show notes for today's episode and follow the link to get that packet capture and download it, view it in Wireshark, your favorite sniffer, sniffer analysis program, and then follow along with what we're talking about. So we've got the capture up in front of us here in the studio. So Magnus, talk about... What happens when the browser, a user's browser, you know, you type into the URL field www.google.com and hit enter? Tell us about this packet capture that we're looking at here, and and what these different fields mean.
1: Well, the the first thing that happens, you know, and it's not here in this capture, but it's you know a DNS request. Obviously, we need to first resolve what Google is out on the internet using a DNS request, looking for what is known as an A record for Google. Once we get that, we establish a TCP connection to Google's web server. Uh, In the packet capture that you are all probably looking at, the first few packets, you'll see that it's a syn synac ACK. Very simple, very common TCP uh, connection. Okay, so we
0: just got the TCP connection here. We don't have the DNS lookup
1: for Google. Okay. So, you know, just starting off, it's a three-way handshake. The TCP connection comes up and once we get past the uh, handshake we're at the point of actually making the request and if you've got this open in Wireshark you'll see there's a uh, get request and Wireshark will decode it to show some of the details if you look down under the decoded section uh, as to what it's doing within the hypertext transfer protocol or the HTTP section you see a couple of key things Um, when people talk about URLs a URL is really built up of two pieces of information a host name. In this case, you'll see there's a field in this HTTP request called host, and that's for www.google.com. And then also something called a URI, which is essentially what you're looking for on www.google.com. So when you put in your browser, you know, www.google.com, what you're saying is I want to get slash, which is basically just the root, the first thing that's there, I want to get slash from the host, www.google.com. And you'll notice within that packet capture, those sections are marked as the URI, which is part of the request, and then also down as the uh, host field. So those are the first two that are common in basically every HTTP request you're going to make.
0: Okay, and there's some other stuff here. I should mention we're looking at packet number four in the yes. packet capture. So and, and
2: I also make a, a note here because this is common confusion that people that Wireshark or sniffer program is translating these fields and putting names as to what it thinks those fields are. And for you know something like HTTP, it's it's standardized and we know which bytes or which bits in that um, packet header are for the host field or for the URI, but that actual text, the, the host field and URI, that the, the field name of that text doesn't exist in the payload, so if you look at that bottom pane you won't see it in there. It's Wireshark's interpretation of the protocol mapping it to those predefined fields, but it, it kind of co- plays into some other captures that you look at where, you know, Wireshark may treat some piece of data as a field when it really isn't in the payload mm-hmm. because it's misinterpreted what it is. So again, um, it's just, just uh, the interpretation of what those fields are.
1: The human readable version. Yes, yeah. the human readable version. So again, uh, the, you know, you got those two main pieces, the URI and the host field. Uh, the other one that you'll notice is a request method. Now, the request method, when your browser makes it, is going to vary. Usually it's either a get or a post. Get meaning, you know, I want to request a certain amount of data, and it says basically I want to have send me whatever is at this URI, whatever is at this uh, resource indicator. The other option is post, which is I'm providing some information. I'm sending data up to the web server. So it's, it's a give and take. So you've got that along with another one that you're going to see that... Uh, Is usually pretty important is the user agent field Uh, in the capture that we have here it's showing up as Mozilla because I believe this was taken with uh, with Firefox browser right Blaine yep yep so most browsers have their own unique user agent string it's their identification says you know hey this is who I am Uh, send me this data this is you know what I support basically and Depending on the web server's configuration or what website you're going to, you may get different material back from them. If you go there with you know, a Mozilla browser, you may get a different page than if you go there with uh, like, an iPhone browser because they can detect the difference and serve up different content based upon it. Uh, another one that you'll see here in this capture, which is also pretty important, is going to be stuff like uh, the Accept Encoding, which basically says, this is the kind of information I can understand when you send it back to me. In our capture here, we have two specific ones listed under the Accept Encoding field. One of them is gzip, which is a compressed version of the page. So as opposed to sending the full clear text version of the page back to you, the server will t- do some rudimentary compression on it to make it a little bit smaller, a little bit lighter on the network. Uh, and the other one is deflate, which is basically just send me the raw text.
0: Okay. And then, so we see that uh, there's an exchange of data at that point, um, and it looks like the server at 66.249.92.104 is sending uh, data to the client at 10.1.1.3. And then looking at packet number 13, we can see that at that point, uh, Wireshark has interpreted that it's got the reassembled TCP segment. So the server sent 5,248 bytes of data to the client. And at this point, Wireshark knows that it's received all of that HTTP data that was uh, contained in packets 6, 7, 9, 10, 12, and 13. And then um, looking at at the very bottom, it shows me the reassembled TCP. And I can see that there's 5,248 bytes of data, but it doesn't really look like much um, because, of course, this is actually being encoded in gzip, yep. so it's actually sending the compressed version on the wire. And then Wireshark is actually smart enough to then uncompress that automatically and show me the compressed, show me the uncompressed data. And it looks like there's 11, about 11 k of data that was sent by the server uh, once it's uncompressed, and I can actually see HTML in that.
1: So you can see, I mean, we shaved off about 50% or more of the payload by doing gzip. And yeah, that does make it lighter on the network, but when you're just looking at packets in the RAW, it's going to turn it into, you know, soup, because it's all going to be compressed. It's not going to be clear text. But what you'll see here as well in this packet, this is packet number 13 in the capture that we're looking at, you'll see that there's some information here about what was returned from the web server in the way of responses. Um, You know, HTTP is a very uh, straightforward protocol. It will have definitive response codes. In this case, it's listing response code 200, which is basically like saying everything's A-OK. Here is your data. Everything is complete. Um, Additional parts that are important in here, again, we talked about the encoding. You see this one's labeled as gzip, which tells the browser that what it's receiving is going to be a compressed version, and it has to wait for the whole thing before it can extract it. Uh, The other ones that are going to be important here is the content length field, which is the web server's way of saying I'm going to send you X amount of data from here on as soon as you receive that, that should be the complete file.
0: Okay, and that's how Wireshark knows that it can reassemble the TCP data sent in these different unique IP packets and and coalesce them together into Mm. this HTTP
1: message. So it's it's those kind of important things and there's one more field here which is uh you know varies depending on which web server you go to but there's also a server field which is basically a uh a text string that the server is going to inject into that that says you know this is the version I'm running you may see something like IIS for Microsoft or um you know in this case for Google GWS Google web server
0: and then after that uh the data's been sent to the client and then what happens here starting at packet I guess uh 16 and 17
1: well, in this specific capture, at this point, you know, the browser has accepted all the data that the web server was sending it for this individual item that it asked for. In this case, remember, the request we asked for was just the slash. So it sent what was at that, lo- at that location. Now, at the end of that, the browser should be able to display that content. So at this point, the browser has finished downloading that slash URI that you had originally requested. And uh, as we noted before, there is this concept of connection keep alive. So, again, that's to save on bandwidth by not having to close down and reopen a new connection every time we want to make a request. We have the ability to just tack another request on behind each one. So we make one connection, multiple requests. It's like uh, carpooling, if you will. So you'll notice here in packet number 15, that's another request on this same connection. We haven't torn down the connection. We haven't built a new one. It's on the same one that we were working with when we started. And this uh, appears to be a request for some sort of tracking cookie or some information from Google, because we see the next packet just after it, packet 16, indicates a 204 no content, which probably indicates that there really wasn't anything for it to return, but it's just something within that initial page we downloaded that tells your web browser, go out and get this additional content.
0: So uh, we've looked at uh, a packet capture of a download of the main Google website. So at this point, we've talked about some of the fields uh, that are present in the HTTP protocol, so now let's talk about some of the things that the ASA can do with, with some of this data.
1: So, one of the features here that you know we, we probably mentioned a little earlier was this uh, Inspect HTTP. Now, if you just apply Inspect HTTP, as is, no additional policy map, uh, inspection policy maps, or anything customized, it really only buys you one additional feature, and that's URL logging. So you will get a syslog that indicates when somebody goes to any specific web page. It'll tell you the user's IP address, as well as what URL they went to which can be useful if you need to log those kind of things.
2: And we should have mentioned too that that's off by default in a default config, so you won't get that.
1: It's something you have to turn on yourself. Yeah.
3: Okay, so now let's get into additionally what we can do with uh, Inspect HTTP, and that is block content or packets based on some attribute found within that packet. So it's a very familiar process with the modular policy framework. Uh, Just like any other traffic that we want to inspect, we define our traffic, and then we take some action on that traffic. So it's a little bit different when you're matching HTTP because you get to start working with regular expressions. Okay, so we use the uh, same process that we normally use for matching traffic. And there's one difference, and uh, that is to define a regular expression with the regex command. Once you do that, you can place that regex inside of a class map, and you've now defined the traffic that you want to work with. You can match with regex on attributes like um, the host field that Magnus was talking about earlier, the URI, or pieces of the URI, and even content type. So you'll see a lot of text, HTML content for uh, simple web pages, and even flash video for sites like YouTube or break.com. So you've got your traffic, you've matched it with a particular regex, and you place that inside of a class map, now you want to take action on it. So in order to do that, you reference that class map with inside of a policy map, and you can do actions like drop a connection, or just simply log the fact that that content was seen, or even chase the connection with the TCP reset. And the last step is to actually tie that policy map to an interface, and you do that with the standard service-policy command. So this allows you to actually block a website or even a particular section of a website. So you could have uh, let's say a private section on Google, let's say it's google.com slash private and you can actually block that particular section while allowing people to get to standard google.com. So we're going to, we get a lot of questions about uh, you know people uh, knock engineers at work wanting to block particular websites to keep people from visiting like facebook.com or break.com or uh, maybe flashgames.com or something like that. So. We built out a a very basic example of how to use this concept uh, with Facebook and we'll place that entire config, it's only maybe like 15 lines, we'll place that in the show notes for you to look at.
2: And I think, uh, you know, in that example um, and and what Blaine talked about, we're matching the uh, header request method um, and we're matching for the host field. Um, and, And again, that matches a regex. And, you know, regexes, they can be very simple or you can make them really complex. And so one other key feature that the ASA has is when you're building these regexes, you can actually test them. There's a built-in regex tester on the ASA, so to to do that, use the command test regex and uh, you put in the text that you want to try to match against, followed by the regex pattern that you're building. And that just allows you to make more complex regex um, entries in the config to match more complex things. So, for example, if you you can think of using the deep packet inspection HTTP stuff on the ASA for two real purposes. One is maybe you want to stop your internal users from accessing you know websites like Facebook like Blaine mentioned. Another option could be you want to um, prevent some type of attacks coming in, trying to attack or exploit your web server. And in that case, you know, you can do a lot of different things about what can be sent in the URL or the URI, um, or things like that. And therefore, you might want to build larger, more complex regex engines. And that's where these, uh, test regex matches because, um, you know, the test regex, uh, really helps because then you can define, you know, what should be allowed. If you only have certain calls that should be allowed to your web server, you define what's permitted and then you can drop everything else. Um, and so, so that comes in handy there. I
0: think that's a good example of, say, like a, a zero day exploit comes out against, you know, say the Apache web server or something, and you know that your IT staff is running the Apache web server, but you can't patch the web server for another like you know 12 hours. Well, you could go into the ASA and find, you know, define exactly with the regex and maybe the URI, the explicit um, URL that the exploit uses to uh, exploit the server and then block that immediately on the ASA so that you, know, you give your server guys time to patch the server and you're not venerable during that time.
2: Right. I mean, uh, an older vulnerability, you know, like the SVC host file, right, or um, you know, or the... Um, the like the
3: password file. Yeah, password yeah.
2: file, right. So you can actually you know, put that as a regex and match it and if anywhere you see it, you just drop and reset that connection. Now, one thing I will say is that we have um, both. We talked about uh, earlier. Magnus talked about the URI field, mm-hmm. um, and it's you know generally it was following the host field. But on the ASA, we break up as the URI and the args or the arguments, and the ASA treats the URI as everything followed a host but before a question mark, and anything after a question mark is actually treated as an ARG. So, depending on what you're using, just know that, that there's two separate match criteria keywords that you need to use, whether it's URI is everything before a question mark, but if you have a question mark in that uh or I or the URL, then it's going to be in the args that you'd want to match
1: against. And you'll see those kind of question marks. Like if you go to Google, for example, and do a search, you'll notice that your uh, location bar will change to have you know some search pri- pri- uh, you know parameter followed by a question mark and then additional parameters. So we're just talking about that's logically separated when it comes to the ASA.
2: Right. And another thing to keep in mind when we talk about regexes too is it really is um, a, a true regex engine. So therefore, if you use the regex, it is case sensitive. So if you want to match on either upper or lowercase of any character you need to specify both with uh, the brackets in between so like open bracket, capital C, lowercase C, closed bracket, right for to match on any C, upper or lowercase.
0: And in our example we show on the show notes we'll show an example of how to block uh, some website and we'll show you the case insensitive uh, regex for, for that.
2: So one other thing um, to note when we're talking about HTTP, um, inspection and deep packet inspection with HTTP is if you do apply an HTTP policy map um, by default we're going to add uh, a parameter called body match maximum 200 and you won't see that in your config unless you do a show run all or show run um, or show run policy map all and then you'll see it there and you'll see uh, it's embedded there so that what that means is if you did decide to match on the body or the content of the HTTP uh, Packets that were going back and forth. By default, we're going to limit that content link to only looking at the first 200 bytes. So if you need to look at, you know, more than the first 200 bytes, you can change that um, body match maximum argument uh, to be something larger. But just note that.
1: And of course, you know, when you start to do matching on the body as well as additional fields within the payload, um, you know, all good things they do tend to come at a price. Uh, I did a little bit of rudimentary testing before we came to the studio today. And ran in uh, ran a couple of uh, Apache benchmark tests through you know one of my firewalls that we have here in the lab, and I noticed that as soon as I turned on uh, inspect HTTP, which as we mentioned just starts doing some logging uh, of the different URLs accessed, I noticed that you know I lost maybe about 10% of my performance as to how many you know HTTP requests I could pass through at any given time. Uh, once I cranked that up and started doing more things like regex matching within the body, as well as some other things like changing the server variables. I noticed that that dropped down maybe another forty-plus percent, so it is one of those things you want to, you know, look at roughly what your CPU looks like before you start implementing these kind of policies. Depending on how much HTTP traffic you have in your network, it may, you know, spike the CPU a little bit because it does have to go through, and the more in the body you match, the longer it takes for it to process every connection. Right, I
2: think that's another key thing is, you know, I mentioned before that, you know, with a deep packet inspection of HTTP, generally it's two categories, right? One is you want to limit or prohibit where your users can go, right, so typically outbound access, or you want to use it to protect your internal web servers, right, or inbound. And because there's two different use cases, I I would highly recommend that um, depending on what your use case is, you apply the inspection in your your class map with your matching your ACL, um, you apply that uh, to the traffic you really want to inspect. So, for example, if you want to protect your web servers, then you don't want to look at all the packets from your users outbound to the different websites they go to to do deep packet inspection on something like what different uh, methods, um, you know, request methods are allowed, right? Whether you can do a git or a post or a delete or connect, right? So, therefore, apply it, um, you know, to the appropriate interface with the appropriate class map so that you're not doing all this deep packet inspection on all the user requests going out. Um, and so we, we, you know, just briefly touched upon um, some of the different fields that you can uh, match on, but we do have a, a wealth of fields on the ASA that you can match in, you know, in the header um, or in the response or in the type of um, parameter supported. So you know, go ahead and look at that. One other thing I'll make a note of is most of the things that we do a match on, but there is some parameters that you can actually alter. And an example of that would be to use. Um, the the server response, you know, what type of server this is. So Blaine and Magnus talked about before, when we look at the captures we can see that uh, Google had their own uh, Google web server, or uh, GWS um, was their response to the server they were using. For IIS it's going to report IIS. Now, a lot of, um, you know, like the script kitty packages or the vulnerability packages that they have, they go out and they first try to do reconnaissance and determine what type of server it is so they can launch the appropriate attack. Well, on the ASA you can actually spoof what um, your server uh, what OS your server is running. And so under the parameter map, the command is spoof server and then you put in whatever string you want in quotes. So again, it's kind of security by obscurity, but it does provide some level of protection that you know they don't know specifically what types of attacks they can launch against your server. So
0: this alters the HTTP payload for that server field yeah. coming through the ASA from your servers back out to your users yeah. on the Internet.
1: And you put something in there and, you know, it's there are no known vulnerabilities for Dave's favorite web server version 2.0, It's that simple. <laughs> well, we've talked so that um, that wraps up what we're going to talk about with
0: the inspect HTTP feature that's present on the ASA. But the ASA does uh, interact and support um, a lot of inter, you know interactions with third party devices, um, external to the box uh, devices that do some sort, you know different types of filtering. So, Blaine, tell us about URL filtering and what we can do with an external server for URL filtering.
3: Sure. So, thus far everything has been on the box, right? You can open up an ASA and you can start configuring URL filtering and you can drop particular traffic. Um, when we're working with an external server, we're actually going to uh, hold on to a request and send it over to a, a server such as a smart filter um, or a WebSense server and allow it to make the decision as to whether we allow that content uh, back into our network to our users. So. We can do that with HTTP traffic, we can do it with HTTPS, and we can also filter FTP traffic. Okay, so the way this process plays out is an internal client requests a web page. and The ASA intercepts that request and does two things. It first forwards the request on to the destination content server but in addition it forwards uh, the request to a URL filtering server. The URL filtering server is going to come back to the ASA and give it an allow or deny on that content request. If an allow comes back, the content coming back from the destination server is passed on to the client and the connection succeeds. If a deny comes back, the content coming back from the destination content server is simply denied and the ASA forwards on to the client a placeholder page that says the content has been denied.
2: And one one thing I'll interject here too is that we're, we're talking about content, but in reality what's really being done is we're sending the URL or the URI to the filtering server so it's filtering it's making all its decisions based on the URL that the user is requesting and typically you know it's you know these filtering servers group URLs in categories like gaming, pornography, business, finance, news right and you go in and you classify whether you want a user to access these sites based on what category they're in and you can apply time of day restrictions but it's not doing any deep packet inspection on it because again All the ASA is doing is forwarding the GET request um, to the filtering server and getting a response back based on that one GET request.
0: For the most part, this process works really well. We have a lot of customers out there that are using external, uh, you know, third-party URL filtering solutions um, that we would forward the requests onto for, you know, that policy decision. But the cases that we do see come into the TAC for the most part are uh, the cases where the response from the web server comes back before the UR, the response from the URL server comes back, meaning maybe the URL server, they just have one for the entire organization, and uh, it's across a WAN or across the Internet, and that latency is pretty high.
1: So w- when we see those kind of situations, there's a nice feature, um, and it's called URL block, and what it lets us do is it essentially lets us put a little buffer there. So when that situation comes up where the uh, remote web server, Google or whoever you're going to, offers up that data faster than your smart filter n2h2 server can what it'll do is it will hold on to it and then pass it back on to you once it gets the permit or drop it if there's a deny so it lets you kind of just buffer up in the off chance that your url server's slow
2: right and you know another thing that people ask about what is the performance you know there's not much overhead performance on the asa to forward this request you know to the filtering server and the filtering servers you know we we see customers that you know, filter several thousand requests per second, Um, and actually that typically in most cases, the ASAs can handle a lot more traffic than the filtering servers can, Um, and in those cases, you can actually set up load balancing across the filtering servers. so you have one ASA sending get requests that are load balanced across five different filtering servers, right? Um, So, you know, it does scale very well in large enterprise organizations.
0: Yeah, I think the key is just to make sure that your URL filtering server is as close as, to the ASA as you can get it. You want it, you want the latency between those two devices to be as little as possible. Yeah. yeah. So uh, if a customer has this configured right now and they want to learn more about the statistics of, of the URL lookups, what are some commands that they can run on the ASA to learn more about the interaction between the ASA and the URL server?
1: I think the best one um, that will give you the most information is show URL server statistics and that will tell you, you know, if it detects that your server is up, that it can receive hellos from the server and that, you know, you know, how many URLs requests have been sent to it, how many responses come back, timeouts, and any sort of problems like that, and that'll tell you a lot.
2: Yeah, it'll also tell you, um, depending on what version you're running, we've enhanced it but it'll also tell you the average response time from the filtering server too down at the bottom, but you know, I, th- I think that response time's in milliseconds and generally the filtering servers, you know, most of them respond in well under a millisecond, um, yeah. it's, they're really fast these days. Um, The other thing is you can do, you know, show perfmon to see how many um, URL filtering requests per second you're getting and that lets you know you know how much traffic, you know, these have to get filtered every second. So that's very useful too. And if you have to do debugging, um, you know, if you're running into problems you might also grab the uh, show ws debug command. Um, That's useful for attack engineers to help further troubleshoot if you're having problems, but generally we'll also need to get packet capture so we can understand, you know, is the response slow from the filtering server or not, or is there some problem somewhere else?
0: Starting in ASA version 7.2.1, we support the WCCP protocol for redirection. So WCCP stands for Web Cache Communications Protocol. And what this does is it allows the ASA, if it receives traffic inbound on an interface, and you can specify what type of traffic you want to redirect, it then, say for HTTP traffic, for example, it would take that packet, it would wrap it up in a GRE header, and it would forward that packet back out the inside interface towards a content filtering device. So, for example, the Ironport S-Series appliance can do this. And at that point, the Ironport S-Series appliance would receive that packet, it would strip off the GRE header, and it would have the full uh, HTTP packet to do any sort of processing on, like deep packet inspection, uh, content filtering, that sort of thing. Um, so, by 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 utilizing WCCP, the ASA can uh, redirect the traffic to another uh, div- third-party device and do a lot more as far as content and deep packet inspection than just simply forwarding the URL that the user wanted to visit to a, a URL a URL filter.
2: Right. I think one, one thing you mentioned too which is one of the most common issues we see in the TAC when people are setting this up is that there's a limitation that this, um, the iron port or whatever that the, the third-party caching slash content filtering device is when you're using WCCP it must reside on the same interface as the clients are. Um, it cannot reside on some other interface. Also the ASA um, only supports WCCP version 2.
0: When you turn on WCCP, the interface ACL is still going to be uh, you know, applied to that traffic. So if you deny traffic to a remote web server with an inbound ACL on your inside interface and a user on the inside tries to go to that web server, we're still going to drop it.
2: Right, but the WCCP redirection happens immediately after that, so you won't get the typical um, deep packet content inspection or any other security checks on that flow that's being sent to the WCCP server, right? However, when that WCCP server makes a request for that content, if that passes through the ASA, then you will get that inspection there. So that's just another thing to note in the packet processing path.
0: Yep, and WCCP version 2 is supported, as I said, after versions seven two one and greater, and it's in supported in routed and transparent mode and single and multiple mode on the ASA.
1: Now in the same line as kind of the uh, WCCP concept which is very much like a like a proxy when you think about it. Uh, we have another filtering function called the CSC module and this is an installable module that can go in the 5510, 5520 and 5540 series if I'm not mistaken. And it gives you uh, a whole host of different functions, you know, uh, different protocols and scanning, but the one we're most interested about here is uh, HTTP filtering. And uh similar to what you can do with like a URL filtering server that Blaine talked about, um, or even with the WCCp redirection that uh, Jay talked about, it'll do things like URL filtering based on keywords, uh, content filtering, um, antivirus filtering, and category filtering, like Dave mentioned, stuff like adult uh, you know gambling or sports related websites, anything you want to block, it can do it basically. And it has its you know nice features to it. It's definitely something that, um, you know, we see a lot of customers using, and you know, it gives you that kind of flexibility to do really deep packet inspection because it sees the whole flow, the downloaded content, the uploaded content, everything, um, without having to tax the ASA itself.
2: Right, and it's actually proxying for those flows, and you know, in addition, it can do antivirus, anti-malware, yeah, type checks too. So I think you know, a lot of customers have a question: is you know, well, there's all these different options. Which do I use? Right, and a lot of it comes down to performance and scalability, as well as feature and functionality, right? Yeah. So for the CSC modules, you know, it's usually in the the smaller business environments where you know your traffic rates aren't extremely high or the requests per second aren't extremely high, because I think you know, we're still limited to, what, around 500 or so concurrent...
1: plus or minus, ...HTTP
2: connections, right, as a max through it. So, you know, for a large enterprise where you might be doing a couple thousand connections per second of HTTP traffic, it it just doesn't scale, right? And that's where, you know, the iron port, if you need to do deep packet inspection, comes into play. Or if you're just trying to do um, filtering as to what websites your user can go to, that's where, you know, the WebSense slash smart filter comes into play. So, you know, from the performance characteristics, that's that's where they fall in, in in these, you know, product offerings. And then if you just want to do just one, maybe two sites, or provide protection to your server, that's where you do the on-box yep. um, type protection. So, and, and you can do a combination of them as well, but that's just where they kind of flow in in uh, the layered structure of, of security.
1: Another facet of uh, these different sorts of filtering solutions is going to be not only capacity, like Dave said, um, but also what can you do with the information when somebody gets blocked, for example. Um, You know, a lot of different uh, enterprises and companies have some reporting regulations that they need to follow in order to provide information about who did what when they shouldn't, so to speak. Uh, If you look at the plethora of different things we talked about today, um, the two that aren't going to give you as much information are going to be the on-box logging as well as the CSC module. Basically, they function on syslogs. If somebody does something that would get blocked by your on-box policy that you created with your MPF, you'll get a syslog says, you know, drop this connection. In which case
2: you need a third-party app to parse exactly. the syslogs and or generate a report from it.
1: Exactly. Same thing applies for the CSC module. It's based on logging as well. You know, it says so-and-so went to a bad website. Um, the products such as the uh, Smart Filter or the WebSense tend to have rather robust reporting sites where you can look at statistics as to how often do people go to certain websites, what websites are always blocked, you know. Uh, give you a little bit more, a a better looking interface for reporting that information.
2: Um, Or or snoop on, you know, user Joe and see where he's been during his lunch break. If that
1: is your corporate <laughs> policy. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, those kind of things, it's easy to say, you know, what has this IP address or what has this user been doing on a regular
2: basis? I, I've looked over Blaine's shoulder. You Trust me, you don't want to run a
1: report <laughs> on where he's going. So depending on what your corporate policy is, I know a lot of places will say, you know, administrators are allowed to go to any web page they want while, you know, uh, students and employees can only go to a certain select web page. Well, that kind of differentiation is usually done based upon, for example, like Active Directory username or group. And uh, with the new CSE module code version 6.3, you actually have the ability to integrate your filtering decisions, who can go where and when, with who they are based upon their Active Directory permissions. So, um, you know, that's again in the new version 6.3 of the CSE module code, and it uh, does give you a lot more flexibility and functionality that you won't get with a lot of the other filtering solutions we mentioned.
0: I know that uh, WCCP on the Ironport S-series appliance does, because it does see that full IP pack and that full TCP connection between the server uh, and the client, you can do content filtering based upon Active Directory and LDAP and that sort of thing. Fantastic. Well, that's it for episode number 13 of the Tax Security Podcast. Send your comments about this episode or if you have suggestions for what you want us to talk about in future topics, send that to securityshow at cisco.com. Remember the show notes as well as the uh, location to download other episodes and look at other episode show notes is at www.cisco.com slash go slash podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tax Security Podcast. To listen to more episodes and to view the show notes for each episode, go to www.cisco.com go slash tax security podcast.